Hi everyone, welcome to an oral account. Today I'm here with Daniel Glasner. Hi, I'm Daniel. He's Daniel, and he's from the kibbutz in Anatsiv. And I'm very, very, I've told you how many times I'm so excited to do this because going, this is my first episode with someone like I met literally last week. And it's very exciting for me to be able to like talk to you and especially about the kibbutz because it's just a very different lifestyle as we've already talked about. So I'm very excited to like get into your lifestyle and the lifestyle of the kibbutz. I want to start with just hearing a little bit about you. Anything you want to introduce okay. yourself with? Um, I'm 17 now. Mm-hmm. Started uh, 12th grade this year. Uh, in my free time, I like to work down at the dairy farm mm-hmm. or uh, mostly do uh, volunteering in MADA. It's our uh, emergency medical services uh, of Israel. And I really enjoy doing it. Mm-hmm. So you just started school. I know I saw you when you came back on the bench. You told me that you just finished school that day. Can you walk me through your week? Like, what does your normal week look like when you start school again? Okay, so uh, my school is very, it's very different than, than I'm assuming uh, schools you're used to are. Mm-hmm. For instance, we do have set hours, we mm-hmm. do have set hours, but it's not like set in stone. Yeah. For instance, it's very common that in the middle of the day I'll go home for a couple of hours maybe, or maybe I'll not go to a certain class because... I know the stuff being taught in that class. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's very not, like, fluid, mm-hmm. my schedule. For instance, I start my school at 9.20 in the morning, have mm-hmm. my first class, finish uh, anywhere, depending on the day, from, like, one thirty to 4. Mm-hmm. And uh, after school, so depending on the day, I do have some stuff that are set. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, usually after school, I have, uh, like, dead hours. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything planned, mm-hmm. and I like to find uh, stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, meeting with friends, going to spring, just mm-hmm. like doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your school is on the kibbutz or it's off of the kibbutz? So it's not on kibbutz. Mm-hmm. Uh, my school is on a, it's a regional school on a different kibbutz. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, 10 minutes away by bike, mm-hmm. uh, five by car. Okay, you you bike, and, uh, I yeah. always see you on your bike around yeah. the kibbutz. That's so nice. And all of your friends that are at school, are they all from the kibbutz or they're from like outside of town? So they're all from uh, the area. Mm-hmm. It used to be that they were all from the area. Mm-hmm. Actually, nowadays, uh, farther students living farther away have started to come. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard, but uh, there's Ramat Golan. You know no, what that is? I've never heard of it. Um, so the Golan Heights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, like the farthest student I know that, that uh, studies at my school lives in Yonatan. Mm-hmm. It's uh, in the Golan Heights. It's two hours away by, by uh, he has a, a bus that takes him to school. It's two hours mm-hmm. each way. Wow. And he studies here. So it used to be very regional. I mean, mm-hmm. just like people in the kibbutzim around here. Uh, mm-hmm. But now it's also a little bit farther and there's people from actually farther away. Mm-hmm. Does he not have access to another school or is there something special about your um, school? Yeah, so my school is the only school in the area that is religious, mm-hmm. but boys and girls study together mm-hmm. and it's not a, like you don't sleep at the school. Yeah. And it's not a shiva. Yeah. So that's why it's a very special school Yeah. in that sense because if you want to get all those stuff, you, can, you can't get them in any other schools. Mm-hmm. Other schools that are religious are not boys and girls together. And usually they're either a yeshiva or an ulpena, depending if you're a boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. And none of them uh, are like all of this stuff together. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear more about your Mada course after because we've spoken a lot about yeah. this before. But what are your regular courses like in school? Like what classes are you okay, taking? Okay, so uh, 
uh, Hebrew. I mm-hmm. finished with last year. Uh, this yeah. year I have. I would hope that you finish. Yeah. I have. Uh, I have to finish English. Mm-hmm. I have uh, extra classes that I choose to take, which are biology and diplomacy. Cool. That uh, diplomacy we learn in English, which mm-hmm. is very, very enriching. Like uh, enriching, would you say? Mm-hmm. Uh, to learn to study a topic in English. Yeah. Uh, math. Also, like citizenship. I don't mm-hmm. know how to say that, but basically, you learn about uh, our country, how, like, uh, how how the country works. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the parliament, and then there's the like uh, the police and the courts, and how are like basically to be citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a couple of other tiny stuff I'm probably forgetting. Uh, sports, uh, or how do you call it there? Uh, f- uh, phys ed. Mm-hmm. Physical uh, education. Yeah, yeah, physical education, and. When I'm not forgetting something, but I think that's it for this year. Yeah, that's because we finished a lot of topics last year. Yeah, that's a packed course, and yeah. so I know that Mada takes up a lot of your time. Yes. So, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So it works like this: time-wise, once a week I have a shift. Mm-hmm. I forgot the word. I have a shift that I do in Bechan, mm-hmm. which I basically come there around three, mm-hmm. three o'clock, and I stay there till ten o'clock at night. Wow. And you just sit there, and if there's a call, you go out to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of the week, I'm what's called on call. Mm-hmm. I live my life, and if there's an ambulance, uh, then like if uh, there's an ambulance ride, the driver will call me. He'll ask me if I can come, and if I can, I'll go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does go out that I spend a lot of hours weekly in Mada. Mm-hmm. Now I'm also a instructor mm-hmm. uh, for first aid, so I'm also doing instructor in, um, also like instructing the general public, for mm-hmm. instance, companies that have to do mandatory uh, mm-hmm. first aid, and also um, doing the mother course for the new recruits, mm-hmm. uh, basically who are getting their EMT training, I, I'm running their course, mm-hmm. I'm teaching them, and I'm uh, testing them, and I certify them at the end. How were you certified? What was the process like? So the process, first of all, starts with uh, joining MADA and gaining experience uh, in the field. When did you start? I started ninth grade. Wow. Um, the course, I finished the course uh, 10th grade, and since then I've been in MADA, mm-hmm. uh, doing uh, f- like uh, field work. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the summer of this year, I was offered to go out to uh, the instructor course. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a very prestigious course. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically here, because we're not a lot of volunteers, so there wasn't really um, like tests to see who can get in. Mm-hmm. But in other bigger stations, I know that there were like uh, 30 kids who applied and only like five got to actually go to the course. Mm-hmm. It's considered like the best course you can do at my age. Wow. Um, it's very intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was two weeks. So from the whole country, from Elat mm-hmm. to like uh, Kiryat Arba. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know where that is, but it's basically like very north. F- six hours uh, drive to mm-hmm. where we were. And uh, we were 300 kids from the whole country wow. who came to the course. And uh, the daily, like, uh, the daily schedule was very intense. Mm-hmm. It was, you wake up at 6, uh, you go eat in the dining hall. Uh, at 8 o'clock, you have to be in class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the day, fi- and you finish uh, the learning in the class at uh, eight, 8 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Practically, it was more like 9, 9.30. Mm-hmm. Every day we finished, then we had a... Uh, like our free time mm-hmm. it wasn't really free time because we had to prepare classes for mm-hmm. the next day and preparing class doesn't mean just writing how am I going to prepare the class it's first of all doing research on the subject because mm-hmm. they tell you tomorrow you're doing a class on the cardiovascular system mm-hmm. so you have to sit down and study 
if you don't know something, you go to Google or you ask one of the faculty, which were very, very uh, like specialized people. Mm -hmm. For instance, some of them were doctors, some of them were med students, some of them were paramedics, mm -hmm. people with a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and you study and then you think about how, how you're gonna deliver, like how you're gonna construct your class, you write it down, you, it's a very specific process, mm -hmm. but basically that took like two, three hours at night. So you would finish at eight, let's say, have an hour of free time, then you would start working on your uh, classes, and you'd finish, uh, I finished a little later, mm -hmm. I would finish around like 12, 1 in the morning, and then go to sleep and start it all over again. Wow. But uh, if you really were a little more focused than I was, you could finish it by 11 and go to sleep. Uh, and it was like that schedule, very intense, 12 hours of uh, learning in a class, plus overtime that you do on your own time, and for two weeks straight. Mm -hmm. So after you got certified and you're teaching these courses, what was that like? So I still haven't had a, an official uh, uh, class. Mm -hmm. My first one is actually in uh, six days from now. Oh wow! I'm doing uh, yeah, I'm doing uh, like a first uh, class for people who are interested in Mada mm -hmm. and want to come and get the basic uh, training, like just two hours uh, of uh, training, just to see if they're interested and also to like have the knowledge of uh, first aid mm -hmm. um, but it, it, a lot of stuff has changed especially in the station um, suddenly someone of importance there I start tutoring uh, people who are start who have finished their certification of the like of the course but are starting to do field work mm -hmm. on the ambulance so I tutor them I really like it very much mm -hmm. it's uh, really really gratifying to like be able to have all this knowledge and then teach it to someone and really like I think it's also it's like a closure for me yeah because I think I always think of like how I would how like the mistakes and also the good stuff that were done to me when I was uh, being taught mm. how I would like to change or what would I like to, to keep and mm. to move on to my students such a beautiful thing yeah. it's so amazing that you're able you have that opportunity to do it and you're acting on it it's a great thing yeah definitely when you were on call for Mada what were what was that like okay like so, tell me a crazy story from when you were on call Okay, so a crazy story was this. First of all, I'll, I'll tell you my routine when I'm on call. Yeah. So when I'm on call, first of all, I have to get uh, so my uniform. Yeah. Uh, the uniform in Mada has to be a shirt that says Mada on mm -hmm. it, uh, long pants, and closed shoes. Mm -hmm. So what I'll do is I have this chair next to my to the door in our house. Mm -hmm. So I'll put my, uh, my shirt and pants on it with a belt and uh, put socks and uh, my shoes next to it because I usually walk around with sandals. Mm -hmm. Just so if I get a call, change clothes, go to the gate, and the ambulance will pick me up from there. Mm -hmm. So it, it can get a little crazy. Like, for instance, last week, yeah, last week, uh, I came home from school, I was tired, I got home, I was uh, heating up uh, lunch. Mm -hmm. As I heat up lunch, he calls me, and I see there's a call. Uh, it was uh, unconsciousness, that was the medical code. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's considered a very like, uh, uh, serious code, mm -hmm. medical code, because usually unconsciousness is can usually resuscitation, uh, overdoses, uh, seizures, very serious stuff. And it usually goes out as unconsciousness because the person who calls uh, the, 
the, let's say, the, or an IR 911, mm -hmm. uh, is not usually medically trained. And they can't tell you if he's breathing, or if he's not breathing, if he's breathing fast, his pulse. Like, they can't tell us all that, but they mm -hmm. can tell us the most basic thing, which is he's unconscious. Yeah. So that was really crazy. Like, from getting home and chilling on the couch, yeah. suddenly you have to run. Yeah. And I have much crazier stories. For instance, uh, one time I came back from uh, work at the farm, and I was showering in the shower. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, when you're on a call, you have to take your phone everywhere with you. Yeah. Everywhere. And, like, always to, to be able to hear it. Mm -hmm. And I was showering, and then I get a call, and trying to get out of the shower, like, get yeah. the shampoo out of my hair, mm -hmm. dry up, get dressed, and run. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's so crazy. It is. It's, it's a little bit of a really crazy lifestyle. Yeah. It's not for everyone, because it's very, a lot of uncertainty. Because yeah. when you're on a call, first of all, it means you can't leave uh, the area. Yeah. yeah. Second of all, it means you have to be ready to, be like, uh, to actually go out on a ride at any time. Yeah. For instance, I've been woken up at 2 and 30 in the morning, Mm -hmm. to go on a ambulance drive that's so crazy and it's like at the beginning it was very difficult for me to like actually get on time to the ambulance because yeah. i have like 40 seconds to a minute mm -hmm. uh, depending on the call and how urgent it is to actually get to the ambulance mm -hmm. uh and i at the beginning they would wake me up and it would take me like a minute and a half to get mm -hmm. and that was too much yeah nowadays really like 20 seconds from when i get the call wake up like they'll call me out of sleep i'll answer yeah i'm coming to the ambulance and I wake up with my pants already on me, like, mm -hmm. running out the door. Yeah. Yeah. That's so crazy. Is the Mada, like, whenever they have an emergency, is it specifically within the kibbutz or in the area? Okay, so I'll explain to you how it works briefly. Yeah. So there is a, what's called a, a tekken. Mm -hmm. In English, I would call it, a, like, the, the standard. Mm -hmm. So our standard in our area is in Bechan, there has to be uh, an ALS ambulance. Mm -hmm. the, the yellow ones, advanced life support, they have drugs, they have a paramedic on them there for like uh, advanced cases mm -hmm. and then there's basic life support a white ambulance mm -hmm. that's us we do deal sometimes with more extreme cases but again it's our treatment uh, protocols are very different mm -hmm. um, so there's one yellow ambulance in Bechan mm -hmm. 24 7 there's a white ambulance a BLS one uh, only in the morning mm -hmm. so whenever there's a so our ambulance is very active and whenever there's a call on the hours where there isn't a, a white ambulance mm -hmm. or it's a so we go out mm -hmm. so we go out to the whole area i mean uh, the farthest case i've had that we were t taken out was like uh close to the kinet wow yeah because we were the only ambulance free yeah uh, because they do they work on who's closest who's most matching to the call mm -hmm. i mean you're not going to send a, a yellow ambulance to someone who broke his leg yeah because it doesn't need a very advanced treatment mm -hmm. you just need someone to get into the hospital safely mm -hmm. and monitor him so that's how they do it by proximity and availability and like the medical emergency itself mm -hmm. but yeah we get called like most of the calls are outside of the kibbutz mm -hmm. when it's in the kibbutz it's a little bit uh, calmer and easier because you know where he lives you know where to go mm -hmm. and it's also very close mm -hmm. do you does it ever take an emotional toll on you because this definitely. is like a very yeah. heavy job yeah definitely mm -hmm. um i think uh the emotional uh toll takes definitely exists mm -hmm. i think <laughs> there's a lot of ways to deal with it mm-hmm I think uh, one of the important ways is uh, after tough calls to have a conversation, the whole crew. Mm -hmm. uh, to, this is at least what I do with my pupils and what I was taught that was supposed to be done with me but wasn't really done because a lot of the people in uh, Mada are like hardened mm -hmm. and like after years of yeah. uh, seeing they don't care anymore. Yeah. But uh, I think for it is important to not just uh, like throw away everything and just keep on. Mm -hmm. uh, so after tough calls, like what I do with my students is I take them and I say, okay, what happened? First of all, it's each say what we what happened okay so we got to this patient he was presenting with this and that we did this and this mm -hmm. and then do a, a round of like um, 
giving feedback. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, in a gentle way, not to be like uh, very yeah. mean or hurtful, but yes, to say what what was done well and what could have been done better, mm -hmm. what should be done better next time, and also just to like talk to them afterwards to see if they're okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think, like for instance, myself, uh, I was in a couple of uh, very tough calls. Mm -hmm. um, I think the the really the hard people expect the hard calls to be crazy accidents or dead people and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I think it is true in a sense, but I think it's much more uh, really heartbreaking just to get someone who maybe even doesn't have any, like a real medical emergency. They just don't feel well, but they have like a tough life story. Maybe someone old living mm -hmm. by themselves or a child that is really going through something difficult right now. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, uh, I think the hardest calls are like really people who are just not having the, be the best time in, mm -hmm. uh, like in, in, sl in slight wording mm -hmm. for instance uh, suicide attempts yeah. people who are mentally ill and not getting treated mm -hmm. which is always tough uh, older people who are just having uh, basic life like for instance they, keep, they fall in the shower or something stuff like that I think are, it's just it's very very saddening it's very hot it's very sad but also on the like the more extreme side Definitely, also the harder calls such as car accidents and resuscitations yeah. do take a toll. Yeah. Uh, I work through them talking to people in MADA. Uh, first of all, getting down the medical part, just yeah. so, because a lot of times you go out with a feeling of, I don't really understand what happened here, because yeah. it was more advanced than my, my, training. Uh, than my training. And maybe, if I would, for instance, um, my, first, my second resuscitation was on a woman uh, older, she was like uh, 60 or 70. Uh, we got there, we did uh, the resuscitation for about five minutes, and then we stopped. Mm -hmm. And for me, I didn't understand why. Uh, I really didn't understand why. And I felt a little bad about it. Like, I mean, the family probably feels bad to see that, like, that we stopped so fast. For us, maybe we could have done more. Mm -hmm. But then after really conversing with my crew, and they explained to me that she was showing these and, the, these and those signs of uh, advanced, uh, like, death that really, you don't do a resuscitation on that. Yeah, and explaining that really gave me like comfort in, okay, so we did the right thing. Yeah. Wow, that's so incredible. Yeah. I, I, you know that part of my program is a lot of kids are either gonna go on MADA or MARVA. For the yeah. kids who are going on MADA, do you have any advice for them about, one, how to emotionally handle it because we're not as experienced and not exposed to it as much? And also like physically, like how? Yeah, okay, so tips on the emotional side, I would say, first of all, get understanding. The worst thing you can do is get off a call that is tough or maybe not that easy and, and not understanding, uh, the, like, like I gave my example, stuff like that. To really, first of all, understand medically what happened. Why did we do this? What did we do wrong? What did mm -hmm. we do well? So you don't have uh, guilt. Mm -hmm. So you don't have guilt of maybe we didn't do everything that was required. Maybe we did something wrong. Mm -hmm. I, I was in uh, calls where uh, people higher than me in their training did stuff wrong and you really go out mm -hmm. of that the feeling of damn like someone fucked up and mm -hmm. someone suffers because of that mm -hmm. uh, permanent damage or even death mm -hmm. uh, and second of all on the emotional side like it's okay if stuff stays with you it's okay if stuff makes you feel bad talk uh, whether it's to a friend mm -hmm. family or a professional or even someone in Mada that you feel close to yeah like don't let it uh, stir inside of you mm -hmm. talk to people share it it's it's fine like people it's understandable that it happens no judgment mm -hmm. well that's that's good advice so i'll relay it back to everyone yeah. i have a lot of questions like i want to kind of shift the conversation now to speak more about the kibbutz and yeah. your role in the kibbutz and the, yeah. com the community as a whole and how it functions its values 
I want you to tell me first, like, in on its eve, like, if you can say, explain it in one sentence, how would you explain it? Uh, it's a religious kibbutz. Kibbutz mm-hmm. meaning uh, a communal life, meaning the ideal would be a community mm-hmm. that basically kind of socialist values mm-hmm. and practicality, mm-hmm. meaning uh, means of production, or in simple words, tractors, farms, there isn't an owner, there isn't someone who owns the dairy farm. Mm-hmm. The dairy farm is owned by like 80, 90, 100 people who live here on kibbutz mm-hmm. and are like members of uh, the community. Mm-hmm. They own it, they all have a stake in it. And I think it's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, lately, the kibbutz is going through privatization, mm-hmm. which I honestly would like. Don't really like it. I think mm-hmm. uh, the kibbutz suffers because of it. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the beautiful things about kibbutz is that it's not built around money. Mm-hmm. It's built about uh, 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 around services. Yeah. For instance, how it used to work and worked for a lot of years and still kind of does, mm-hmm. is that you go to your job, mm-hmm. you get a paycheck. The paycheck doesn't go to you. It goes to the kibbutz. Mm-hmm. But the kibbutz gives you everything you need. Yeah. It gives you a house. If you have kids, it gives you daycare for them, and it mm-hmm. gives you a house that can house them. It gives you food, clothes, a driver's license, a car, mm-hmm. um, a job. Anything you need is provided to you, and you give your salary to the kibbutz. Mm-hmm. And then there is like the argument of, okay, but you can't have like an extravagant lifestyle and own like three cars and a huge house. But I think the beautiful thing about it is that there's kind of like a minimum... Like, no people suffer here. Yeah. Everyone has a house, everyone yeah. has food, everyone has clothes, and everyone has, like, the basic necessities they need to have a comfortable life. Mm-hmm. And that's really what's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you can see the clear difference between how this works, obviously, and how, like, what I'm used to in America, and, like, you see the reactions of everyone who's coming from my program and, like, how they're reacting to it from, like, all different around the world, and it's very interesting to see, yeah. like, the different approaches to it. It's, we've had a lot of jobs, I've like told you, like when, when I worked with the cows or like when we went to the, the Sadam, we did the olive branches. You were saying how your primary job is with the cows. Yeah. Do you want to like speak about your role and what you do for them? So what I do there is mostly milkings and mm-hmm. just maintenance jobs, yeah. either of the herd itself, such as medical treatment, uh, sorting them. And also of the facilities themselves, like fixing stuff, building stuff, helping people to build stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and milkings, which is the like the real bread and butter of the, the dairy farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started working there actually when I was uh, 15. Wow. Uh, I was re- the guy who was in charge was really nice. He came out to me. Uh, he offered me a job. Mm-hmm. I came, and he was been very very nice to me about everything from like the conditions and making sure there's food there, and making sure my hours are comfortable, mm-hmm. and uh, paying for my driver's li- for my tractor license, mm-hmm. and really giving me a free hand in, in working. Yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, let's say it this way. It's not really legal to work on school hours. Yeah. Technically, you're not allowed to work on a day where there's school any hour of the day. Why? Um, because the idea is that, first of all, you don't want people from poor uh, families to work instead of go to school. Yeah. And second of all, you don't want them to work after hours instead of like uh, having like their social life yeah. or studying for school. The thing is here it doesn't really catch because as I said, the standard of living here is not high, but like the, the, the it doesn't go really low. Yeah. So it really isn't an issue of money. It's more about like self-accomplishment and, and just working and work ethic and mm-hmm. wanting to give back. Mm-hmm. So it's less of an issue here and he was really understanding that. I mean, in other places... 
on the kibbutz. They wouldn't let me work only on holidays, only mm-hmm. on like Fridays when there's no school. Mm-hmm. But he was very understanding. I mean, when I started working, I used to sometimes skip school and go to work. And he saw me there and he could have said, no, go, like leave. You're putting me in legal trouble. Mm-hmm. But no, very understanding and just didn't say anything and allowed me to do my job. Mm-hmm. The cows, when I, I told you how I went to milk the cows at night and it was... It was very fun, like, obviously, because, like, it was fun for, like, an hour, and then I got kind of exhausted. Like, what shift do you usually take? So, I usually do noon milking yeah. and night milking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really hate morning milking. Yeah. I did it once. I did it once in my life. Uh, I tried it out. Yeah. I, I, I finished it exhausted. Yeah. Like, I, I can't do it. I can't get up at 3 a.m. Yeah. Work my, five hours. It ruins your whole day. Yeah. My roommate at the, in the kibbutz, like, had to wake up at 3, 4 in the morning to go to the milking the calves like I was it's like horrible. you're crazy yeah yeah it's really horrible it's really hard so I do noon milking or night milking yeah depending on like how it goes with my uh, schedule mm-hmm. technically I prefer uh, n- like I don't actually prefer one over the other because yeah. the night milking is a little cooler mm-hmm. but in the noon milking like because it's noon so there's more workers that are doing other stuff and it's really fun and you get to do like sometimes uh, when you finish the milking or before the milking yeah. you get to like help around in other stuff mm-hmm. so I, I don't have a favorite I'll do whatever there is mm-hmm. how many families are in this kibbutz? Uh, close to 400 wow I think yeah 400 families? yeah wow that's amazing that's really incredible so you do you know everyone? I used to yeah like uh, when the kibbutz was a little bit smaller uh, I really didn't know everyone like you could give me a name and I'd say, oh, yeah. is this and this is daughter yeah. and uh, I know her brothers and whatever. Nowadays, less so because uh, there's been uh, new new people coming to kibbutz mm-hmm. from out not, that aren't even connected here familiarly. So they're, meaning they're not uh, kids of people who lived here who who were like marrying and having a family here. Yeah. But just people from the outside. Yeah. Uh, I have nothing against that. It's just I don't really know them yet. Yeah. Uh, but getting to know them. And uh-huh. I know, I can say confidently, I know most of the people here. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. And your friends, do you have a lot of friends in the kibbutz? Uh, yeah, we have uh, like uh, this extra school program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it like the NAL, or in English, like the youth uh, mm-hmm. group. Um, it's basically from uh, 7th grade to 12th grade. It's uh, separated into 7th to 9th mm-hmm. and uh, 10th to 12th. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have uh, activities uh, probably once or twice a week depending on like how active the youth counselor is mm-hmm. and we meet up and we have like from doing uh, volunteer work to helping out on stuff on kibbutz to like just having a, a social meeting and or maybe even learning about stuff mm-hmm. or and having discussions and it's just really nice it's really beautiful yeah because I think one of the beautiful things of kibbutz um, in contrast to the city, mm-hmm. is that it isn't you finish school and you go into your house and you're closed like between your four uh, walls and it's just you and your family there for the rest of the night. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it would be weird for me to not go out after school and see friends. Yeah. And I think it's really nice because there's all these programs and extra school uh, social activities that really <clears throat> give you company also after school hours. Yeah. And it's really nice. You have everything you need here. Yes. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it really is. And for choosing for your job when you were assigned to do the cows, is there an, a way for you to choose what you want to do, or how does that work? So it used to be very like uh, specialized, like like when my dad was a kid, mm-hmm. he's pretty old now, he's like fifty, mm-hmm. when he was a kid. So you would just <clears throat> you would be assigned, you you could choose slash be assigned wherever they needed yeah. uh, a job, and you would start working from like seventh grade, and you would have to work like sixteen hours a week, like really a lot. Wow. Yeah. Uh, nowadays it's less so it's more optional like you do have to do 50 hours yearly 
for the kibbutz, but it's really easy to do it on holidays and yeah. like in like uh, jobs that aren't like uh, set in stone. Like here, yeah. they need someone to help in this and someone to help in that, so you do it. Mm-hmm. I really wanted a job in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. I really wanted like a, to have a like a, a branch. We call them the, the branches here. Mm-hmm. Like every like the refet and the gada, like the, the field mm-hmm. and the dates and the olives, like. They're all a different branch, that's mm-hmm. what we call it. So I really wanted to, to have one of those. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to a lot of the of the people who were in charge, and they, they said, no, like we don't really need workers. Even the, the, the milk farm mm-hmm. uh, didn't accept me at first. Really? And I, I really wanted the job. So I got an offer from uh, my uncle, who worked at the Olives then. Mm-hmm. And I really, like, I, 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 I worked my ass off there. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, on the, during Corona, was when I started working. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, a grove of dates, uh, of Olives. Yeah. In front of the kibbutz, I did the whole field wow. by myself. That's incredible. Uh, from zero, like uh, put, sticking in the bamboos and putting in the water and uh, digging the holes for the dates to be, for the olives to be put in and then putting mm-hmm. them in and then maintenance. Like I really did everything there. Yeah. It was really gratifying. And after that, like people saw I was serious and I was a really good worker. Mm-hmm. And then actually the milk farm guy came to me and asked me like if I want a job. Wow. Which was really, really beautiful because usually it happens the other way. Like mm-hmm. you go and you seek a job. Yeah. And he just came to me and was like, I, I saw you like, you're serious? You want to come work here? And I was like, yeah. It's amazing that you have something to show for the work. Definitely. Like, it's incredible. It's really gratifying to have every time I go like near the entrance of the keyboards, I see it and like, it's mine. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yours. That's really crazy. Yeah. Can you tell me about the different branches? So there's this. There's First of all, there's Palsiv. It's mm-hmm. the industry side. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a factory here that works with uh, kinds of uh, foamy plastic mm-hmm. uh, for filling in chairs, for uh, floating, air, for mattresses. It's, it's really, they have a lot of types. Um, there's also, then there's the, like, the agricultural ones, the classic uh, branches of work here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are split into livestock and... Um, and field? Yeah, field, basically. The field, you have the dates, the olives, and uh, what we call gadash, which is gidule sadeh in English, mm-hmm. uh, field growths. Yeah. Stuff that grows in the field, it's usually seasonal, such as tomatoes, um, watermelons, stuff that are seasonal. Uh, then there's the dates and olives, as I said, that are also seasonal, but they have to, they're, they're crops that you don't replant every year. Mm-hmm. Meaning it's trees that you have to maintain and then. Uh, get the fruit and uh, pack it and sell it. Mm-hmm. Then there's the livestock, which we have uh, cows, mm-hmm. which is where I work, and the chickens, which is where a good friend of uh, my family, Tzvi, works. That's the one thing I didn't see yet, is the chickens. You'll have to show me after. I will. Uh, it's a, there's a couple of uh, hens? No, I call it a pen? Chicken? Chicken coops? Yeah, coop, that. So yeah, there's a couple of coops. Uh, they're pretty big, and uh, it's, a, it's not a good job. I, I would not recommend really? you work there. Well, good thing that it's uh, not offered then. The thing is, it's uh, mostly automatic. Yeah. The feeding, watering, everything's automatic. So the only two jobs that there are are maintenance. Yeah. And uh, which is not you won't fun. like this picking up the dead chickens. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. So it's not a really fun job. Are there not more? I when I was working with the cows, it was kind of making me so sad to like when when I was working with milking them, it just made me so sad to think of like killing them like are there not more vegetarians here like i don't know how you are able to be working with the cows and then not like grow an emotional connection to them and then yeah. have to kill them so first of all there are uh, vegetarians on kibbutz there are a couple which is really hilarious because one of the most like uh, 
uh, extreme vegetarians I know here worked at the chickens. Really? While he was vegetarian. No. I think he just like worked into his uh, vegetarianism. No. But I think with the cows, you do grow a connection kind of, but I don't know. I don't. I, I honestly don't feel like really bad about eating meat <laughs> or something, because I, I also grow a hate towards cows. Yeah, yeah. Because they they kick you and yeah. then they They're... almost kill you. I've almost died twice in the farm. Wow, One time, wow. Uh, I was walking into the parlor and yeah. a cow came running into the parlor and it just squished me onto the wall. Oh my and god! Now, a cow weighs around 700, 800 kilos. That's ten times what I weigh. Yeah. I tried with all like my strength to try and push or anything. Oh. Nothing. Like as if it was a wall. Yeah. And for I was lucky. She like two seconds and she passed. Yeah. But I really felt it afterwards. Like she really squished my my shoulders wow. hurt, my back hurt. But it was really scary. That is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and the other time, I was just walking behind a cow, and she, for some reason, decided to kick full, like both legs backwards, <laughs> and this close to my face with her hooves, and that was really scary. That's so scary. Uh, I yeah. thought it was bad when the cow stepped on my hand when I was trying to like. Oh, attack. that's that's not nice. Yeah, yeah no. Like I have a lot of scars on my hands and cuts from just getting kicked by cows. Wow. Yeah. Uh, no. It was, yeah. it was also like I worked with the cows, and I, like when I told you about them when I was milking them, and it was so fun, and like so I was doing it with my friends, yeah. and then the next day like they they assigned me to the cows because I had so much fun with them and then the boys like they it was me and my friend and then the two boys that were working with us and the two boys like they got to feed the baby cows and like whatever and then they gave me and her like we had to scrape all the shit out of the bins and like it was we were in the rain boots like walking through shit and it was like I literally like felt myself about to throw up so I kind of understand it now like so there's a plus and minuses in the working farm for instance in our farm uh, all the really horrible maintenance jobs, yeah. the scraping and the cleaning stuff and stuff like that. It used to be just if there was a need, if stuff was too dirty, they would yeah. just say, "Okay, you, you, and you are here, do it." Yeah. Uh, it was really not fun because everyone hated it. Yeah. But then there's this new guy, Naftali. Yes, I was with. gonna say Naftali. He's so the Naftali, uh, he is in Betachia. It's yeah. a home for people with a autistic, uh, on the autistic spectrum. Yeah. And he just does not have an issue with those stuff. Yeah. Like, you'll tell him something to do, he'll do it. Yeah, he's and he really great. doesn't mind. He was and not flinching yeah. one second. And he's really amazing because he really, like, his job in the ref is doing all the jobs no one else yeah. wants to do. And he's okay with it and yeah. he likes it. Yeah. Which is amazing because it would be horrible, horrible if they would give it to someone who really would hate it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, there is, like, a t- tough jobs and funner jobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he was he was so sweet. He was the one that was showing me and her, like, he was, like, walking us through, and then he, like, brought us water. He was so sweet. Yeah, Nostali like, is the freaking best. He is the best. I know that the kibbutz has, El- Elki was telling us about how when the kibbutz, like, kind of went through its transition, it went from, like, everyone kind of getting the same paycheck no matter what the job yeah. to a salary based on the toughness yeah. of it. So is that, does that have to do with the privatization? It does, yeah, the privatization. So basically the whole idea was that, first of all, Back in the day, no, there wasn't money. Like, yeah. You wouldn't get any money. Your mo- your paycheck would go to the kibbutz, and they yeah. would provide you with services. At a certain point, again, as the lifestyle in Israel and the the life, uh, like the the life, the, yeah, as the lifestyle basically rose, and people mm-hmm. were get like, back in the day when the Israel was just uh, founded, the kibbutzim were the best places to live. Yeah. Because in the cities and everything, people there weren't jobs, there weren't like it was really bad, and here it was good. Yeah. But then as as like the general um, like life style became more like uh more let's call it like comfortable yeah so people here said you know what at the end nowadays getting the basic services is not enough for me yeah i want to buy a car i want to buy my kids branded clothes i want to buy them nikes and i wanted them to have money so like it was like okay so we'll give you on top of all the 
all the services we give you, mm -hmm. we'll also give you a, a, a paycheck, which is not really big. Yeah. When you think about it, it's a paycheck just for, for like, uh, uh, stuff that you, like, uh, buy, not because you need, but because you want. How do you say that? Yeah, like, extra. Yeah, because if you don't have to pay for living, and you don't have to pay for food, and you don't have to pay for clothes, basically, yeah. and you don't have to pay for a car, so you're basically getting, what, 4,000 uh, shekels a month, which is a minimum wage, but it's you can spend it all on, like, I don't know, buying cool watches and yeah. phones and TVs and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, there, again, as, like, the lifestyle in Israel really rose, people here were like, you know what, that's not even enough for me. I'm working in this, like, really tough job, and this guy who's, like, milking cows gets the same salary as me. Mm -hmm. And then it started going to privatization, mm -hmm. which is what happened. And nowadays, people really get the pay different paychecks, and uh, the services have been cut, cut back also, because mm -hmm. a part of privatization is... You want a paycheck? Okay, yeah. but you're not going to get these services anymore for free. Yeah. Nowadays, the Chadochel is run by a private company, yeah. and you pay for it, yeah. and you don't get clothes anymore, and the kibbutz does not pay for your stuff anymore, mm -hmm. and even the services that it does offer are priced. Yeah. Very well priced, but not like free as it used to be. Yeah. For instance, the cars. We don't have a car. When we want to go somewhere, we take a car. Now it's like a shekel for a kilometer. Which is very cheap, yeah. but it's still something. It's, yeah. It shows a, a change in like the mindset. Yeah, definitely is a, yeah. a crazy change. What is special about Inanitziv in terms of what they produce and their values versus uh, other kibbutzim? So first of all, uh, mostly kibbutzim in the, in the country are not religious. Yeah, uh, we are. Yeah, uh, which is really uh, kind of special. Yeah. Um, also, uh, product-wise, we oh. I remind you something when you asked me about the branches I'll just mm -hmm. add now for whoever's listening yeah. uh, there's also fish I forgot <laughs> about that we're, we have a, we're a big exporter of fish mm -hmm. so basically uh, our exports uh, and what we produce some is locally and most of it is actually to export mm -hmm. for instance the dates uh, we divide them into three categories uh, A, B, and C mm -hmm. A goes to Europe mm -hmm. B is sold here and uh, the C ones are like sold to livestock or to like uh uh, poor country stuff like that the milk is sold here to Tnuva like we have a contract with them mm -hmm. uh, and also the other stuff I think most of the stuff are for exports like yeah. the tomatoes we grow are uh, for ketchup mm -hmm. uh, and not for like produce yeah but, uh, yeah everything's uh, different and uh, we have some special stuff some less special stuff yeah the lifestyle here is like it's incredibly like even just to experience it for the time that I have is just it's just so eye-opening to Definitely. Like, I think it's a really beautiful place. I think it, at least uh, everyone should live here for a little bit. No, just to definitely. Just see what it's, what it's like. No, they really should. Like, it's very humbling. And, like, it just opened my eyes to how privileged and materialistic everything that I'm used to is. I remember you said this, like, a really long time ago in the conversation about how at 15 you started working with the cows. Is there, like, a certain track that every kid that's coming from the kibbutz has. It used to be so. It used yeah. to be so that, like, if you... That, from, like, ninth grade, everyone had a job. Yeah. In a certain branch, and they were committed. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, because the kibbutz is privatized, and people are more... having more luxurious lifestyles, their kids are much more, uh... How do you say? The lazy. Yeah. Basically. For instance, nowadays, the biggest uh, job provider in the kibbutz... Mm -hmm is the, the education system. Mm -hmm. Like, they just sit with the other kids and 
babysit them mm-hmm. uh, for money. And I think it, 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 there, there has been a critical change from working in the different branches mm-hmm. and to just not working at all. Like most kids don't work at all nowadays. They mm-hmm. do their 50 hours in doing like the easiest job they can get and then mm-hmm. they'll, they won't work because they don't need to work. Mm-hmm. Because why would you work when your parents will mm-hmm. buy you everything and stuff like that? I, my parents do buy me like whatever I need, but I do think it's really beautiful that I can work, earn my own money and get the extra by myself. Yeah. Uh, for instance, they'll buy me shoes and they'll buy me my phone, but if I want to get an electric bike to get around, I buy it. And if I'm going to get a driver's license, I'm paying for it. And mm-hmm. if I want to go out with friends, I'll, I don't have to ask them for money. Yeah. I think it's a cool opportunity. And I think nowadays, uh, this mindset of like, I want to work here on Kibbutz, I want to uh, give back, I want to also earn my own money and be a little independent, is uh, going and dying. Mm-hmm. So I think nowadays the kids are very lazy. They're not used to doing anything. Uh, and they just don't, don't feel like, why would, I, why would I go and sweat and get dirty for mm-hmm. some money? How often, besides for when you leave for school and for uh, when you're on call, do you leave the kibbutz? Um, so first of all, to do groceries, to mm-hmm. buy groceries. We don't buy here because yeah. uh, the guy is very expensive mm-hmm. and he's, uh, I'll tell you a secret, don't tell the other guys, mm-hmm. but his, uh, anything that needs refrigeration <laughs> is oh, yeah, not you, trustworthy. There. Yeah, told you, you told, you told yeah. me about this. The, he gets his uh, grocery shipments at four in the morning and he's too lazy to pay someone To, sorry, it's too cheap to pay someone to actually put it in their refrigerator, so it sits yeah. there till six. Yeah. And depending on the different seasons of the, of the year, it can be like, uh, what, 30-something degrees at, at 4 or 5 a.m. Yeah. So we don't buy their dairy or anything. Yeah. So we go to Bechan to do groceries. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, most of my friends. I do have a lot of friends on Kibbutz, mm-hmm. but, uh, I do, but I, I usually see them through the, the conventional uh, after-school programs. Mm-hmm. And my other friends... I, who live on different kibbutzim around the area, I don't really see yeah. uh, through those stuff. So that's why I leave the kibbutz a lot to see a friend who lives in uh, Shluchot, if mm-hmm. you've been there. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah. So I go there I sit, and uh, I sit with him sometimes. So mostly, I'd say socially and errands. But day to day, there's not really a need to leave. Yeah, there really isn't. You have everything you need right here. I'm used to like such a different lifestyle. So like when I'm coming in, it just feels like it's just, you have everything you need like right here. Like there's no reason to leave. Do you feel the same way when you leave? Yes, I think uh, they have a really nice story that kind of like shows it. My dad uh, lived on kibbutz most of his life. He mm-hmm. left for like uh, 15 years when he was younger, but came back, he's been living here for 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, straight, and he was born here and lived here till he was like 20-something. Mm-hmm. So he really lived his whole, most of his life here. Mm-hmm. And he's really used to how stuff used to be. Mm-hmm. And for instance, he, when he drives a car, and well, let's say we'll go to Bechan, he won't uh, uh, put his seatbelt on until we get out of the kibbutz. Mm-hmm. Because for him, it's like, You know how you're like doing something in the driveway with the car, so you're not going to put on your seatbelt now to like do or to park yeah. nicely or get yeah. move the car to the shade. So that's how he feels about driving in the kibbutz. Yeah. And only when he leaves, he gets that. Oh, okay. Now, now like we're on a real straight, so I have to yeah. uh, put my seatbelt on. Yeah. For instance, when I go to like cities or to crowded places, it's like sometimes I'm like when I was in Jerusalem lately, mm-hmm. and I was waiting in a bus stop, and there were like tons of people around me and noise and cars and traffic. Mm-hmm. It's like I just miss the quiet yeah. and the green and the air and the not being yeah. between so many people. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Yeah. And I always, like, that when we met, we met on the bench that was yeah. right there. It's, like, the most... You don't understand how incredible... It's the freaking most peaceful place on It's earth. the most beautiful thing in the world. And I remember, like, doing my interview there, and that's when, I, that's when we met. And that yeah. Was, yeah. 
I love sitting there. Like yeah. you have the mountains of Jordan in front yeah. of you, and you have like the basketball court, and it's just really beautiful and mm-hmm. peaceful place. Mm-hmm. Like even before, it, 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 it was it didn't used to be that fancy. Mm-hmm. There used to be just like one of those like metal benches, mm-hmm. one of them there, mm-hmm. and that was it. But people just go there, sit on the grass because it's just a really like beautiful place. It is. And watching like the sun, the sunset, and like the it's just wow. so beautiful. It really is beautiful. Yeah. Do you know what you want to do? What is? Do you know what you want to do after? Yes. What do you, what tell us? I'm very in, like now thinking about that because uh, my army uh, yeah. draft is getting closer and you, they really start people in school, friends, family start to yeah. push you to get, get get like start thinking about what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always been interested in medicine. That's why yeah. I got into MADA. Um, since I've gotten, I've got even more like uh, uh, interested in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm really not sure what exactly I'm going to do. I know in the army I want to do a paramedic course. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if I want to do a co- the course or the academic uh, uh, course. Mm-hmm. So there's two options. There's one is doing the course, which is like any other course. You get a certification, but you get the certification is not respected everywhere, yeah. and you don't get the same amount of knowledge. Uh, the academy training is much more extensive. It's uh, like the course is one year. The academy, like uh, learning academically in the university is three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you leave with a, a, fir- a bachelor's degree, is that what it's called? The first degree. Yeah. A bachelor's degree and you get a certification that's globally respected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really not sure what, what I'll do. I'll probably mm-hmm. try to get into both. If I get into both, I'll see. Like, I'll think about it then. If I get into one, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and later in life, I might uh, go and think of doing medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just really don't know because it's a big commitment. Yeah. It's like seven years of learning and then like four years of uh, interning. Yeah. And it's a big commitment. On the other hand, it really interests me and I might want to do a career in that. And you're talented in it. Like Yeah. You, and yeah. you have experience. It really depends on the like the options I get. Yeah. For instance, if I do the academic degree and I find like a really comfy job, so maybe I'll decide not to. Maybe I'll decide to do a second degree in emergency medicine and just mm-hmm. go into logistics. Or maybe I'll decide that this isn't for me and I'll go into medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really just trying to see. Like it's kind of like I know my general direction. I just yeah. have to see what life gives me and how I decide to respond to it. That's totally fair. Yeah. Do you see yourself living on the kibbutz when you're older? This kibbutz, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, depending how and where, because I myself am not religious and I don't really see myself having a family in a place where I don't really agree with the ideals yeah uh, but i would like to at least uh, have my children grow on a kibbutz yeah. i think it's a beautiful thing to give it a child is. it really is uh the like the ideals the the life experience i just think it's really beautiful for a kid to grow up on a kibbutz yeah so maybe not here but i do see myself living on a kibbutz mm-hmm. one day i have two two more questions for you one yeah. what are the values that don't necessarily align because I was when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about I wanted to talk to you about yeah. your values and the kibbutz's values and so first of all there's the part about uh, privatization which yeah I honestly don't don't really like it yeah I think there's something beautiful about uh, community about caring for the for everyone mm-hmm. making sure everyone has like a basic standard of living mm-hmm. of not being uh, wrapped up in money but more so in, in services basically mm-hmm. being more like straightforward I mean why do you need money to get stuff if you get stuff you don't need money and money just corrupts yeah and that's why you think I really want to live on a communal kibbutz mm-hmm. which is, that's my biggest uh, issue with this kibbutz mm-hmm. and second of all I think uh, religion I don't I definitely would want my kids to be exposed to religion and to like to feel it I just don't think uh, the way the kibbutz uh, uh, treats religion and uh, acts upon it mm-hmm. and enforces it uh, is something I would like to be part of okay that's totally fair how do they how do they enforce it uh, for instance uh, if I go to the Chadrocha and I don't have a kippah and people will tell yeah. me 
and uh, people like uh, give you side eye if they see that uh, on Shabbat you're not dressed in like fancy oh, clothes. Oh wow! I didn't know that. Uh, if you're walking with a, a girlfriend or something, mm -hmm. sometimes people say something. Wow! And I didn't also, know that. Yeah, like for instance, uh, you're not allowed to be in the pool without a shirt. Mm -hmm. It's really stuff that I don't really agree with. Yeah, that's totally fair. Yeah. I've been also like being in Israel and seeing Israelis and how they how like seeing you like the way that you are so like grounded in yourself and the way you're very you're very mature and like thinking about like I'm thinking about like boys from home and like boys your age it at in Florida like it's just crazy to see the difference and I always think like I've been thinking more and more about it and like realistically how I would want to raise my kids in Israel because it's just a different way of life and Definitely. it's a thousand percent a step up from America in Thank terms you. of but, uh, yeah. yeah I think there is something about growing up uh, in this country and definitely on a kibbutz because I think there's a general like, opinion of parents of like let the kids do what they do yeah like I'm not gonna like let them stay out till late at night let them uh, experience stuff mm -hmm. let them do stupid stuff let them get punished let them get a uh, uh, experience basically mm -hmm. like for instance uh, during summer I did something I'm not sure if even now your parents would allow you mm -hmm. uh, I went to me and a friend and did a 85 kilometer hike in three days wow um, in the middle of freaking nowhere oh my god um, yeah that would never fly and i would honestly like i'm would be too scared to do that also yeah. we just we packed like everything we needed for three days um, oh you told me about this hike yeah and we did we did it it's so crazy it was crazy uh, we, we, there were crazy times there like really yeah. real danger but i think that's uh, another thing it's, i don't think it's uh, irres irresponsible I think uh, it's like you guys are fearless. It's it's more like uh, calculated risk. Yeah. I I'm an EMT. He's uh, has done a how do you say like a navigation uh, courses and he he has a group that he navigates with. Yeah. So we do have like the experience and the knowledge to know how to deal out there. Yeah. And um, yes, it, it is dangerous, but we have the skills to deal with it. So we shouldn't avoid doing risky stuff just because it's risky if we do have the capabilities to deal with it. Yeah. Um, we, like, for instance, there are stuff that are dangerous. For instance, in the U.S., I, hitchhiking is not a good, smart idea. Yeah, we, we spoke about hitchhiking. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, you'll, you'll end up dead. Yeah. But if you, if there's something that's risky, you shouldn't not do it just because that it's risky yeah. if you think you can deal with it. Yeah. No, definitely. It's a very interesting way of looking at it. You want to tell us a story about that, like, from that hike? I can tell you a very traumatizing uh, evening we had there. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I, I don't, can't remember if I told it to you or one of the other girls in Nakhchara. The second day of the hike, uh, we ran out of food. Out of food, yeah. Because uh, we, we planned on buying food in a certain place. We got there, and apparently they don't have a store. Mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't have food. Uh, we went out on, we did 15 kilometers before we got there. Mm -hmm. We did another, like, uh, 17 kilometers afterwards. So we're after 20 kilometers are behind us. We get to this uh, valley, middle of nowhere. It's dark, uh, no people, nothing. Just us and a map and like the water, which is starting to run out. Mm -hmm. And the food, all we had was uh, like one pack of rice. Mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't want to make it because we wanted to keep it because it, you, you, there's this one lesson we had. We're not going to finish our last food now. Mm -hmm. Like we'll always keep food yeah. for, you know, riskier situations. So we go and we start walking. We did a miscalculation on how much kilometers we had to walk. Uh, we thought it was five kilometers. Practicality, it was more like 15, 17 kilometers. Wow. So we walked for two, two and a half hours. Now we, walked, we went really fast because it was night. We didn't want to be there. It was illegal to be there technically because it's, a, it's like, a, a, like a trail and you're not allowed to walk on trails at night. Mm -hmm. So 
we were kind of illegal. Uh, it's at night. I didn't have cell reception. My friend did have cell reception, but he had 5% on his phone. Oh, my God. So we shut off our phones, and we were like, we're not going to use it unless it's like an emergency. So we had our map. And we didn't have a, a thing that tells compass. the north, a compass. So it was very difficult to navigate because instead of, I don't know if you know how to navigate, but you have the map, and you use the compass to know where the north is, and then mm-hmm. you can align the map and say, okay, I'm here, and I need to go there. But if you don't have a compass, you have to say, okay, this little curve looks like that mountain, mm-hmm. so maybe I'm around this yeah. area, and I have to go walk in that general yeah. area, <laughs> but there's like 15 trails. How do yeah. you know which one you're on? Yeah. It's a little crazy. Yeah. Uh, so we walked. We started walking. At a certain point, we get to this, like, uh, after two, two and a half hours, we get to this uh, Nunsadik. Mm-hmm. In English, it's, uh, like, basically a place that's on the map that you know, okay, I'm, I'm right in this place. Yeah. Um, it was another, it was a break off to another trail, and we said, okay, we're here. And we looked, and it was just halfway. Now, in practicality, it was about around seven, eight kilometers. But we assumed that it was only two and a half because we thought it was five. Mm-hmm. We thought we would get to the uh, camp by 11, mm-hmm. and it, we were just halfway there after two and a half hours. Meaning we only did two and a half kilometers. Meaning we walked a kilometer an hour, which is very, very slow. And we knew we did faster. And then we had this kind of like mental break. Like, because you feel disconnected from reality. Yeah. My watch tells me two and a half hours passed. My legs tell me I walked more than two and a half kilometers. Yeah. I know I did two and more, than, but the map is telling me that. And there's yeah. no way it's wrong. Yeah. And that, that was when like anxiety started kicking in. Mm-hmm. And we're at, we don't have food, we don't have water. We can't sleep here because it's illegal. In the morning we'll get a fine. And all, we don't have, my phone doesn't have cell reception. His is almost dead. We're in the middle of fucking nowhere. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, my heart was racing. I was, f- like, feared for my life. Yeah. We were just walking. Like, I had blisters on my legs, and we were after 20 kilometers. And I, energy, I did not have. Mm-hmm. But I was, like, practically running because of the, 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 the rest adrenaline. of the trail. Because I, the adrenaline and the, like, the anxiety. And we, we like, did it. Yeah, it was very tough mentally. I mean, like... You feel so disconnected from society. Yeah. I mean, we saw like an empty water bottle someone left and it gave us comfort yeah. to, see, to have a connection again to society because you're like 48 hours, haven't seen a living being, haven't seen civilization, a car, a mm-hmm. light, electricity, nothing in the middle of nature, alone. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really like mentally difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we got out of there. Uh, like there was four kilometers ahead of us. We have we done... Uh, close to 10 mm-hmm. and there was this like really small road that just cut the trail in half mm-hmm. we got to the road and we just like we sat there for half an hour we called our parents it was like really really scary wow. and there we kind of like grouped together got it back together talked a little and finished the hike and got at like 2 a.m to uh to the campsite I put my phone aside. we got at 2 a.m to the campsite we made the the rice uh with nothing meaning Rice water on, on the, the stove. Wow. No salt. It was disgusting. Oh. We were so hungry that we just ate it and enjoyed it. Wow. And then we just went to sleep. And it was just the craziest like thing ever. See, that's such a like a real, like authentic experience yeah. that like I would never think would ever happen to me. Like it's Fair just enough. it's yeah. I know and it's 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 sad, but I wish that I could yeah. I was I mean, in that world. In a sense, I, I don't, I feel like it was really a, a place of growth. No, I think it could affect me very negatively, but because yeah. we, we kept on, we, we dealt with uh, the feelings we had. persistent, yeah. Yeah. So it gives you like, wow, first of all, I'm, I as a person am capable, first of all, of walking 30-something kilometers a day, of dealing with uh, mentally tough uh, situations, of persisting even when you're out of water and food yeah. in the middle of nowhere, yeah. and, and having blind faith in your friend who yeah. says we were walking on the right trail. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. It's a real test. 
no, the day afterward, we also had a funny story. So we had to walk from around Tzfat to Miron. Mm-hmm. means anything to you? No. It's a 15-kilometer walk. Mm-hmm. Um, now that was like a piece of cake for you? It was. The <laughs> issue was we did not have food. Oh, okay. I woke up to the sound of, of hearing English, and I woke up my friend and I said, I kid you not, Gaffney, that's his name, Gaffney, Americans, I'm sure they have food. That's so funny. So we, we went to them, we oh, begged for something, they gave us a couple of fruits and the pita, we ate that for breakfast. We went out on a trail with no food, mm-hmm. and we ate nothing for the 15 kilometers. Oh, and that was the, the, the real, like, feeling of hunger. Yeah. Not hunger, like, you know, I had a run, and now I'm a little hungry, or yeah. I didn't eat all day, now I'm hungry. That's like my body is at full functioning, carrying, like, a 20-kilo a backpack with oh, seven liters of water in it. And, and I'm walking this trail, and I'm sweating, and I'm using up energy, and I'm hungry. It gets to the point... Where you, it starts messing with you with your head. Yeah. I mean, he was walking. My friend was walking in front of me, walking single file, and I was just looking at him, and I wanted to beat him up. Like, <laughs> I, something I of just help. him existing in front of me annoyed the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to like. I had to stop myself. You're becoming a caveman. Exactly. <laughs> really, like literally caveman brain. Like the parts of your brain that are like rational and thinking yeah. just shut off. All you care about is I'm walking. Yeah, I'm walking, and I see this kid in front of me. He was my best friend, and like I've been through a lot of shit with him, and I want to fucking kill him yeah, now because so he's just walking in front of me, and it's so annoying. Yeah, <laughs> and he told me the same thing. We talked about it later. He said, really? "Yeah, you're in front of me. I want, like I really want to like to hit you." That's just, so funny. It's just that, that like crazy hunger yeah. of like my body is 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 in in like an active mode yeah. and I have no calories no food I haven't eaten well in the last couple of days like I told you like yeah. we, we eat nothing and you're just starving oh my god uh, it was crazy what an experience like yeah. you learned so much from it like it's so incredible yeah about ourselves about the culture about our like as survival. people survival <laughs> yeah it was really really crazy I, a beautiful experience yeah it was so nice being able to talk to you like I've, I love talking to you in general uh, but like having you. a real real conversation about everything that I, yeah. I all my questions are basically answered if i have any more i'll let you know but thank you, very much. Thank you so time. much for being a guest this was so exciting thank you can't wait to see it on the podcast i can't wait to i can't wait to show you all right bye